This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is Paul Verschur with uh, Parta Mitra with the Convergent Science uh, Network podcast. And in this episode, recorded as part of the CSN Barcelona Cognition, Brain and Technology Summer School, we're talking to Majem Srinivasan, also known as uh, Srini. And Srini, you're, in, your, in your lecture, you focused very much on the mental life of bees, if you want, and with a special focus on, on memory. Uh, well, part of it, yeah. The first part was more on low-level vision and navigation. Mm-hmm. Right. And the second part was really more on the cognitive bits. Right. So we can start with the first part or the second part. Mm-hmm. Whatever, okay. you, whatever you prefer. Good. Well, may, before we do that, how mm. if, if we think about, let's say, the vision or the cognition in mm-hmm. bees, mm-hmm. could you give us an like, intuitive description of the world in which a bee lives? To well, I think it's... Uh, okay. I mean, um, it probably depends on whether it's... Uh, uh, flying outdoors or, uh, you know, staying indoors in the hive. Uh, outdoors, I suppose the world is very similar to what we experience. I mean, it's mostly visually oriented or visually dominated, I would say, uh, with, with a bit of um, olfaction thrown into. Uh, when you get close to a flower, you, you smell it and you, you either go towards it because you recognize the smell or you avoid it because it's, you know, the nectar is not good over there. But uh, within the hive, it's of course a completely different situation. It's totally dark and it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, pheromonal contact and there's a lot of acoustic signaling going on. Um, and that's stuff that a lot of other people are studying. I don't know a lot about that, but it's certainly a lot of, it's mostly acoustic, I would say, inside the hive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so starting out then with, with the visual capabilities mm-hmm. of bees, mm-hmm. this would then support their, their navigational skills. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So, so, how do you decompose vision in, in bees? Okay. I mean, um, as uh, you probably know, insects have these compound eyes, which are many, many you know facets, and we have these so-called simple eyes, uh, camera lens type eyes, uh, and so optically, superficially, there's a difference between insect vision and our own vision in terms of just how the information, the visual information, is collected or uh, you know, sampled. Um, but uh, the more fundamental difference, as I was saying in the, in the talk, is uh, the two eyes of an insect. Uh, when I say two eyes, I mean the right compound eye and the left compound eye. They're very close together. So it becomes very difficult to do stereo uh, if you're an insect because the baseline is very small. Mm-hmm. Uh, ex- and the only way you can do stereo, the only circumstance under which you can do stereo is when you're uh, your object of interest is very close to your eyes, which is when you get a much bigger disparity, of right. course. So this is where uh, it looks like insects have uh, gone a, a different route. And they... Uh, sorry, am I distracting you? No, 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 no. I'm distracting myself. Go ahead. Go <laughs> okay. ahead. Um, which is where they, um, they, uh, they have to use a very active mode of uh, sensing the world in three dimensions. And this is done by physically moving in it. Uh, and measuring the optic flow that uh, various objects around them generate. Right. So something that's very close to you, if you're moving in a straight line, something that's very close to you moves by very rapidly in your visual field, and at high speed tells you that this is very close. And um, something that's very far away, on the other hand, moves very slowly, and that tells you that that object is at infinity. Right. Uh, and what we've done is uh, a nice series of experiments, maybe the first ones, I suppose, uh, with insects, to show that insects really gauge distance based on how rapidly the images are moving. Mm-hmm. So this is done with flying them through tunnels and moving the 
patterns on the walls, as you right. know. As you know. Yeah. But now, in insect vision, which is a very active area of research, mm -hmm. um, there's, if you want, let's say, a prototypical design of, of a vision system, mm -hmm. fairly hierarchical, mm -hmm. where you slowly move to, let's say, a bit more complex and integrative processing of, mm. of vision-derived mm. signals. Mm. But in what sense do, does the B visual system really deviate from that sort of standard template? Okay, what are in, the unique okay, features? Okay, what we're finding, I suppose the fly, most of that work, the initial work has been done with the fly. And there, uh, you know, the, the, motion, the motion setting system has been studied very well there. Um, but I think it's just one one part of what goes on in an insect uh, visual visual pathway. I mean, there's lots of other things happening. For example, in bees, again, we're finding what seems to be almost certainly multiple parallel pathways. So some of which function the way Reichard described it with this, you know, correlation type mm -hmm. motion detector. But all of these... Um, these other mechanisms that are used to sense range, for example, they don't seem to obey the Reichardian laws. Okay, they, seem to have different pro they, they seem to be more accurate uh, uh, measuring devices for measuring image velocity mm -hmm. independently of the spatial frequency content and independently largely of the contrast of the um, scene as well. Mm -hmm. And you, if you think about it, you need that because you want to know how far away a surface is regardless of what its texture is, spatial texture, or what its contrast is, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you need a robust system, and the Reichardt system does not deliver that robustness to you. So there must be other systems there which are acting in parallel, or, or which are processing the, you know, using several different Reichardt detectors, maybe mm -hmm. uh, multiple channels to get that, to get that uh, what do you call it, that uh, vertical information on velocity. So that's one thing. Uh, apart from that, of course, um, honeybees uh, have excellent uh, color vision trichromatic color vision, which they need to you know, detect uh, flowers, recognize flowers. That's, uh, and they're, they're really a beautiful learning machine. You can train the bee to learn a, a color in uh, half an hour. Five rewards is enough hmm. for a bee to, you know, to learn a color. So they do great with that. Uh, and of course they have um, a beautiful polarization sensor as well, which you probably know. So to analyze the polarization pattern of the sky and use that to, uh, as a compass. If the sun is hidden behind a cloud, then they can't use the sun anymore, but they can still use the polarization pattern in the sky to work out which direction to fly. Right. So all of that is there in the bee, which I think, well, color vision certainly is not as well developed in the fly. And with polarization vision, no one really knows for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you had mentioned that when you had these artificial small tunnels mm -hmm. set up, mm -hmm. you could fool the bee into thinking that it's flown a smaller distance. Mm -hmm. A larger distance. Larger uh, distance. Flown a larger mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not entirely invariant to the Exactly, exactly. Cues. No, you're right. Absolutely right. But what's the, what's neat about that is that, um, um, as I was saying, in the, when someone asked the question, um, it, so you would say, for example, if bees flew in different landscapes, um, you know, they would uh, give you different distance readings, right? Because the, the optic flow they've experienced could have been different. Uh, let's say you fly over a plane, you know, um, uh, over a lake, for example, where there's almost no optic flow as opposed to going through a dense forest. Uh, but what happens is that a bee that goes and finds a food source after it's flown over a lake comes back and does a dance and it signals a certain amount of units of optic flow, which is the measure of distance. And then all the other bees take the same route. So they experience the same environment. So whatever calibrations or miscalibrations are happening, they're the same for all the bees, and so they cancel each other out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I think, uh, that's why the system probably works. <laughs> mm -hmm. But again, there's a, there's a, a little unsolved question there, because um, uh, different bees can fly at different heights above the ground. 
and so if you fly higher you will experience a lower amount of optic flow so the integrated flow will be lower so the question is then do bees actually measure height and take that into account when they're doing their odometry uh, or do they all fly at the same height mm -hmm. uh, we don't know that there's some mm -hmm. anecdotal uh, observations which say bees fly typically about two meters above mm -hmm. the ground uh, but whether that's really the case uh, no one really knows for sure mm -hmm. but if you would have something like a, a polarized light compass if you want yeah you could always use that to recalibrate right and make yourself your, your distance estimate independent of your altitude well the polarization compass will tell you only which direction you're flying in mm -hmm. it won't tell you a height about the ground yeah but then you could ignore it because you just you just instruct your fellow uh, bees to fly in a certain orientation with respect to that yeah but you, how, how do you know how far to go though the optic mm. flow will See, that's depend the thing on that's how far you are yeah. on the ground. So you see, you have to give two bits of information to specify a location in 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 a plane, right? You need the direction, and you need the distance. So mm -hmm. you got to give the specify the position of the food source in in polar coordinates. So the the, the polarization pattern of the sun, they give you the compass direction. So they tell you, okay, go this way. But then you also have to tell them how far to go mm -hmm. before you start looking for the food. But you could also argue that the more minimal model will just take the orientation yeah. until you hit a target. A, a, a target. Yeah. yeah, you could. But you see, what's what is also interesting and probably subtle is that when these bees come back home and dance and they're advertising um, direction as well as distance, and they're also passing out these uh, nectar samples to these other bees. So quite often a bee will uh, stop this dancing bee and beg it for nectar samples, and this mm -hmm. other bee will you know, regurgitate mm -hmm. some of the nectar that's brought out. And so this bee can actually assess how good that nectar is, mm -hmm. and based on the distance signaled, it can decide whether it's really worthwhile going all that way or mm -hmm. not. So these bees are evaluating dancers that mm -hmm. are being produced by different foragers coming back from different food sites, which are advertising different food sources, and they're making up their minds. Okay. So do I go a long way to mm -hmm. get to a good food source, or do, can do I fly a shorter mm -hmm. route to get to a not-so-good food source? What, there's a trade-off mm -hmm. there, and apparently they're working out the trade-off in their minds. So what kind of correlations did you find? Between... Well, for instance, the animals that decide to go off on a, on a long okay, foraging okay, okay. run, what's the, difference? So, okay, what's the so, difference in the so nectar? It, seem, it seems like, uh, so this is not our own work, but other labs have investigated it, and it looks like what these bees are doing is that they're looking at the ratio of uh, calories brought in in terms of energy from the sugar, nectar, versus calories expended to mm -hmm. get to the food source. Okay. And they're trying to maximize that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then uh, still an alternative could also be that you sample the nectar to get a chemical fingerprint of mm -hmm. your target yeah and this could help in your navigation because then again you could go for some odor plume that matches that template to get to your target sure no you 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 could do that it, it, it's harder though because what happens is um, uh, typically okay, if you can say okay this baby comes back and gives you a, a scent of lavender right so because you go looking out for lavender yeah. uh, you don't know which direction to go and remember it's not just a simple diffusion process people in the old days used to think you know these scents just diffuse nicely and you have a nice diffusion gradient and you just go up the gradient and you'll find the food source right no it's not like that when wind is blowing the whole thing is very turbulent and you get these little filaments of um, you know scent mm -hmm. uh, that are moving around and you've got to be lucky to hit one of those filaments sure and then you can zigzag as you mm -hmm. probably know across the filament and get to that mm -hmm. you can do it but it's tedious of tedious. course tedious. sure and there's some evidence that insects do when, they, when they're close to the goal they do start looking for the scent and certainly they're using that information too to guide their okay. final thing yeah but, yeah. but you've shown <clears throat> in your controlled studies that uh, uh, once you've put one of the bees through your 
um, tunnel with mm, a controlled mm, distance. Mm, mm. It can signal um, distance to the bees, which then will fly and will skip um, sources of food oh, to yeah. go to the food Certainly. source at I mean, the right distance. They're, they're definitely they're definitely paying attention to the dance. No doubt about that. I mean, you're. I mean, I guess Paul's question was, yeah. Why do they even need a dance? But uh, there's no doubt that they they are using it. That mm-hmm. is definitely right. the case. Yeah. No, I was just trying to see what's the minimal. What would be the minimal model? The that, minimal that thing use, would right? certainly and be yeah. I mean, if you had uh, uh, you got the scent uh, given to you at the hive, and, and the nectar tasted good, uh, you could just go out looking for that. Exactly. It'll yeah. take you a long time. It won't be very efficient. No, and you get some vector, some heading vector, right? It's okay. Some heading vector. Yeah. Okay, if you get a heading vector. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but if while they're going through all that trouble, you might as well even you know provide the distance, right? I mean, it's sure. one more parameter. But remember, so, we were trying to solve the problem: yeah. how to deal with so, altitude. So actually, right? it's interesting. Well, so this is another thing that came up in the discussion. So, how does the dance actually evolve, right? And so people are not really sure. And but there's a lot of evidence that other insects will dance too, uh, completely out of context. So, like which there's ones? a species of butterfly, for example, apparently which. Uh, uh, it's a solitary butterfly, so it, it flies a certain distance, and then when it lands, it does a waggle dance. It waggles its abdomen, just like the bee. <laughs> but without an audience. Without an audience, exactly. So, mm-hmm. But no one really knows why. But it's there. It's some, some kind of epiphenomenon. Yeah. It's, hmm. <laughs> so maybe it's something metabolic or some, mm-hmm. some other thing. And so maybe maybe that, that has been picked up by these bees uh, and being exploited right. as a signaling mechanism. Has anyone measured the accuracy with which the distance is signaled? So if different bees end up at different distances from the target uh-huh. um, or at different angles, okay. has anyone measured the spread? So, yeah, typically uh, the, the distance, uh, the scatter and the, and the distance, uh, the waggle durations is about uh, 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's always yeah a percentage of the of the, of the mean uh, distance, um, but uh, what is interesting is that with the angular error, uh, as we were discussing the other day, it looks like uh, when the food source is close by, there's a certain angular error in the in the direction uh, indication, but when the food source is very far away, the angular error is much smaller. So they're trying to, uh, you know, account for the fact that if you have the same angular error. That will signal a much bigger patch when you're further away compared to when you're closer, right? So they're mm-hmm. trying to compensate for that. There's some built-in compensation, I guess. But this is interesting because then apparently this compensation comes at a cost. Because when something is nearby, so it's yeah. easier to find, yeah. they seem to put in less effort to communicate that parameter. Yes, yes. So what's that cost exactly? You're saying cost in terms of uh, uh, doing an accurate dance? Right, exactly. It seems to why, be. So is he, are you saying, why, why are they being sloppy when... Uh, yeah. So well, that's interesting. Easy. Maybe, I, I don't know what the energetic, energetic requirements are for, uh, for doing a dance and whether precision involves more, uh, it involves more concentration. Are they, are they really <laughs> being more sloppy or is it that when the waggle dance is longer, the audience gets to integrate for a longer period of time and therefore gets a more accurate estimate? Well, the actual variance itself, so people have measured physically the... Uh, the variance in the uh, uh, axis uh, orientation, mm-hmm. and that seems to go down. But is is that a simple consequence of having a longer dam? Mm-hmm. I, uh, it's possible. It's possible that it's that a measurement. No it's real it's possible that even, even with even with the humans who are measuring these dances, maybe there is an element of uh, increased accuracy simply because they have a longer sample. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. 
Uh, oh, but that's only true when the Weggle dance is is a highly controlled low noise mm. expression yeah. of these parameters. Is yeah. that true? Uh, yeah. So, so you mean how noisy is it? It's pretty noisy. It's not. It's not clear. Right, so longer integration. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't possibly help you yeah. to have a bit so more accurate estimate. I, so, the, and and the, and the, and the extreme limiting case is is when the when the photos is very close to the hive. When, um, as you probably know, there's no longer even a waggle dance, so the waggle disappears completely, and it becomes just a round dance. Right. And that simply says, okay, I'm not going to tell you exactly which direction to go. Just look within a, a small mm -hmm. radius, 50 meters of the hive, and you'll find it. Right. So it becomes very imprecise as you get very mm. close to the origin. But the two interesting aspects of this, um, I find them interesting right now, mm -hmm. is that um, you could also argue that on the one hand, it's the, the dancing bee itself mm. who has integrated more or less information. Like if you have to sort of unwind this clock, you have been winding up the clock for a shorter period of time, when you found the nectar nearby, so there's mm -hmm. less to display in the, in the waggle dance. Would that be an alternative interpretation that would make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean the 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 original uh, people think the way this whole dance first started was in the tropical bees, which uh, were living not inside these uh, dark, uh, you know, hollow chambers, uh, you know, nests mm -hmm. that we find in the European bees now, but outdoors. And in, you um, know, in and and there, the, most of these primitive bees now have dance on a horizontal surface, not on a vertical surface. Mm -hmm. And they're doing a kind of a scaled-down version. Uh, they're simulating the flight to the hive, so, I mean, to the food source. They're just basically pointing in the direction of the food, and they're doing an eh, uh -huh. <laughs> coming back and doing another. Okay. So it's exactly as though they're doing a, yeah, yeah, a miniature version of the actual flight. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a sense, that makes sense, right? So mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're coming back, and they're sort of re replaying that. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting, because that creates a new problem for the observer. Because now the observer must extract this direction of movement independent of their own of their own position. Okay, in the um, in the outdoor arena, that's fairly easy, I think, mm -hmm. because you basically have to face in the direction that the bee is waggling, mm -hmm. and then you know where the sun is. Yeah. So I say, okay, I'll fly in such a way that I keep the sun over there, right. or the polarization pattern in the sky if the sun is not visible, if there's some patch of mm -hmm. clear sky. Okay, I'll say, okay, I know the orientation of the vector should be that. I'll hold that and go along, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll go for a, a, a distance that tells me, you know, how many optical unit, flow units I should experience, and then when I get close to that, I'll start looking. Right. Mm. But now, if I take a bee and I observe the bee dance, mm. but now I rotate it a few times and then I let it go, will it still orient itself correctly? Theoretically, it should. Uh, no, not in practice. <laughs> <laughs> They're not all theoretical I, physicists, that's a good you know. Point. <laughs> that's a good point. I don't know if anyone's done that. Because that's a bit the issue I was... That's I very was, interesting. Because the way you describe it is that you physically orient okay, yourself. Okay, okay, As far yeah. as people know, uh, well, no one really knows whether bees have a vestibular organ as yet. Mm. If they do, of course, they could get messed up. Right. <laughs> Absolutely, mm. right? Now, the way people think, uh, they, they assess, they, they, they calibrate their orientation is to the dance is done on the vertical plane inside the hive. And uh, uh, the, the direction of the sun is symbolized by the vertically upward direction which is the direction of uh, negative gravity. And people think they have a sense of gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the way, for example, your abdomen hangs in relation to the thorax, uh, that tells you which direction gravity is. And that's your, that's your direction calibration. Right. That's what people think. But in addition to that, if they have something that senses your angular velocity, mm -hmm. as in a vestibular thing, uh, no one really knows. Okay. 
But then how do they map that back in the horizontal plane relative to the sun? Because then gravity is not helping you. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Completely unknown. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh -huh. Also, how do they hold this information, you know? Exactly. They, they, there's the automatic information. They have known, they, they go some, some distance. And it can be, you know, several minutes before they come back home and dance, right? So how do, where is that information stored? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it stored as a charge in, uh, you know, the membrane uh, potential of some neuron? Or is mm -hmm. it stored as an activity in some kind of place cell? Mm -hmm. My own feeling is that really uh, the mushroom bodies and the insects really are like the hippocampus invertebrates, and there might be place cells. So there could be certain place cells. As you go along to a food source, presumably successive place cells are lighting up. Mm -hmm. uh, so and then <clears throat> now that there is uh, more bee genetics and molecular biology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. coming on, are people thinking of manipulating bees to yeah, yeah. knock out certainly knocking out genes. knocking out the, the the dancing gene for example i mean uh, why is, has that been done no no there'd be that people are, i'm sure they're doing trying to do that or are, are people mm -hmm. breeding bees for certain traits that they, yeah they've been doing that for a long time even before all the, the gene was mapped of course i mean uh, you're basically the idea is to breed bees that will produce a lot of honey no i meant more not, in the uh, context of the waggle dance uh, bees that signal uh, better signalers of mm -hmm. or worse, <laughs> yeah, or worse. <laughs> interesting. It would be very interesting if if you can find out the gene, a combination of genes that, for example, are responsible for the dance. That's a very basic thing, right? Could, it's, could it's, one not even screen bees? I, I'm, sure that, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure that's study. being done. I'm sure that's being done. I'm not a molecular biologist myself, but I'm sure there are people doing it. There's uh, Gene Robinson in the U.S. who's been doing stuff uh, mm -hmm. along those lines. I don't know if he's actually succeeded yet, but that'll be really exciting. And we started discussing whether this was learned behavior or innate behavior. Mm -hmm, you had some mm -hmm. comments on that? Yeah, my, uh, this is just a guess. I can't be sure, but I think uh, it's pr the, probably the, the basic dance is pre-programmed. It's there like a child that has you know, its, its gait already built in, but it's probably learned and refined uh, during the first few days. Mm -hmm. The first three weeks I spent it just not doing any foraging, as you know. They're just acting as nurse bees inside the hive, so there's no need to do any dancing. But it's only after that, when they start to go and forage, um, that um, uh, that they start, start to need to dance. And that's the point, by the way. I don't know if uh, Nick mentioned that, but when the, burst f when the bee first starts to go out and forage, uh, the mushroom bodies expand hugely. <laughs> so that map is being laid mm -hmm. down. Uh, and uh, there's another piece of evidence that uh, that's interesting. It's really like the London taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but are the are the mushroom bodies this very central structure in the bee brain? Yeah, uh, expanding in some uniform fashion, or is it with certain lobes of it that expand more than others? Um, oh, I don't know about the details. The calyces are the cup-shaped structures. Yep. They 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 enlarge hugely. Okay, and there's still a debate about whether the number of neurons is actually going up. Or whether it's just the density of the neuropil. Mm -hmm. So it could be that the dendrites are getting, you know, uh, longer sure. and developing more synapses. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a debate, I think, about how many, how many, whether the number of neurons, whether new neurons are being created. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's still the case. Okay. But certainly all those mm -hmm. calyces get very big. Mm -hmm. yeah, so then the, the question becomes, this is a bit of shift and also towards memory, if you want, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. we're talking about something like mm -hmm. a place mm -hmm. cell type response mm -hmm. in, these, in these mushroom bodies. Mm -hmm. So if we start with, let's say, the basic task these bees have to solve, which is, okay, okay, here I go, I'm navigating out, I'm finding some nectar, I'm flying back home, and now I'm going to tell everybody about it. Yeah. So where's the memory of that? What's the memory of that? Oh, where is what, it? Are, what are the physiological no, correlates no, of it? Nobody has the foggiest idea. That's a, okay. that's, that's, that's a million-dollar thing. I mean, mm -hmm. where is this information stored? 
Again, my guess is that it'll have to be somewhere in the mushroom bodies. It'll probably okay. be some place cell that's firing that says, okay, this is the location. And that has to be translated somehow mm -hmm. into producing a dance. Right. No, but <laughs> but let, let's approach it maybe different. Let's see what, what do we know about B memory structures that yes. could help us understand answering this, yeah. this question? Well, unfortunately, almost nothing. Well, we know all, a little that, bit all, about this. Yeah, all that people know is that if you knock out the mushroom bodies, uh, a lot of learned associations right. are lost. Mm -hmm. But that's about it, really. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Uh, There's a little bit that uh, um, you, you were mentioning that certain things the bees are easier to train, certain tasks the bees can be trained in uh, easier, uh, whereas yeah. other tasks are oh, more yeah. difficult. Okay. And you also had some time courses associated yeah, with so that. Yeah, so there's gradations of uh, learning. So, for example, uh, the simplest kind of learning would be uh, color learning. It's just so fast and uh, so robust. If a bee learns a color, we learn it, as I said, in half an hour, hmm. five visits. But uh, that means the, the bee gets reward, rewarded yes. to yes. find that color, and it will find it within five trials. That's right. So, so the okay. idea, no, no, the, the, the idea is, okay, you do, do the uh, reinforcement five times. So the classic, uh, you know, von Frisch mm -hmm. experiment was to have uh, trained them to come on a, on a piece of blue paper, uh, which had a drop of sugar water. Uh, and then, of course, he did a very nice, nice, uh, he just didn't simply do two different colors because, you know, you could, they could be discriminating the colors not on the basis of color but on the basis of intensity, on the basis of brightness. Sure. So what he did was he had blue a blue blue uh, sheet that he rewarded the bees on, uh, and then so they came five times, got rewarded on that, and then he gave them a test where this blue sheet he took away the sugar water there was no food anymore, and the blue sheet was placed in the midst of or in the general vicinity of a bunch of other sheets of different gray levels. And so then he said, okay, come, let this train bee come and choose where it wanted to land, and it picked the blue. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the intensity, it was perceiving hue as a separate, you know, quality. Right, exactly. And, 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 and mm -hmm. landing uh, on, on that thing. So and that, that, again, takes only only five rewards. Mm -hmm. And so what's, the, an what's the generalization capability of, of the bee? If I now put this blue patch of paper mm. among many other different kinds of blues. Oh, uh, the, 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 yeah, the delta, lambda, the delta lambda discrimination is uh, almost as good as that of a human. It's about five nanometers. So if you do experience okay. the spectral lights, hmm. uh, five nanometers. They also have very nice color constancy the way we do. So they can perceive the shade of blue to be, well, they can recognize this irrespective of the illumination largely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, evening versus midday. Uh, so that color constancy competition is going. All animals need it, probably. You know, and bees have it too, of course, mm -hmm. which 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 is nice. Um, well, maybe that's 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 really exciting issue as well. But but maybe we should get back to that later before we mm -hmm. understand memory, or at least understand mm -hmm. what we don't mm -hmm. understand about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So so I think the behavior leads a long way ahead of the uh, the physiology. I think. Mm -hmm. And, and the circuit, knowledge of what the circuits are doing. That's, right, but that's then the let, let's look at from a performance perspective. Mm, I mean, yeah, how yeah. many landmarks can I can I memorize as a bee? Okay. Uh, <laughs> again, it depends on how you train them. Um, um, I don't know if anyone has, anyone has looked at that systematically, but certainly you can, in terms of discrimination, you can train bees to distinguish between uh, mm -hmm. you know, horizontal versus vertical patterns. You can train them to distinguish colors, as I mentioned. Uh, you can train them to distinguish between odors, mm -hmm. uh, different scents, and you can train them to associate uh, um, odors with, um, with colors. Mm -hmm. So you can have a bee come into a maze, it gets a whiff of scent, 
and then you can try to say if you, if you smell lavender then we go to a decision chamber uh, you have to pick the blue disc if you smell lemon you got to when you go to decision chamber you got to pick the yellow disc for mm -hmm. example right. so they can learn to make those associations mm -hmm. um, uh, you can also train them to do uh, uh, kind of a delayed master sample task. Mm -hmm. uh, you're familiar with these delayed master sample tasks? Yeah, of tasks? course, but so, just define it. Oh, so the idea is that, uh, you know, the, the classical experiment is you, you flash a stimulus, let's say a color to a person, blue, and then uh, later on, a few seconds later, they're given a choice between blue and yellow. So if you see blue as your sample stimulus, you've got to pick mm -hmm. the matching stimulus with blue. What's the, what's the delay the bees can handle? Uh, about five seconds. Okay. And then after five seconds, it 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 is it drops off rapidly or it, gradually. It drops off gradually, and okay. about about five, it's uh, close to you know mm -hmm. uh, random. Okay, but then uh, but they can also learn non-matching, mm -hmm. so pick the stimulus okay. that does not match, mm -hmm. and they can also learn to match across uh, stimulus modality. So you can train them to do the matching task uh, using um, sense, mm -hmm. and then expose them to a visual task on which they haven't been trained, and they will do the matching. So they've learned the concept of matching <laughs> mm -hmm. from the from the from the from the smell task, <laughs> uh -huh. and they're applying it to visual. So can task. Gen they generalize the rule exactly? But uh, both for matching and non-matching. Yes. Okay. Isn't that nice? That's amazing. That's pretty amazing. That's really cool. Okay, but now still don't know why it's useful. How it's useful in nature? Here we're treating these animals as a lab rat. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine that it's uh, okay. In certain contexts, maybe when you land on a flower and you get some, uh, you know. A good reward there. You might want to seek out a similar flower which mm -hmm. has the same color. So in that sense, there's a thing. But you're not. You see, you're, you're in the in the in the in the lab experiment. You're not being rewarded uh, on the on the sample stimulus, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It's really. So I I find it hard to think of a, a a situation in nature where this particular task has to be applied. But they can why do it. They so can do it. You see. But look, but why is that so hard? I mean, if here you are, you're, I'm Mr. B flying around. Mm. I'm visiting different flowers, yeah. different colors, yeah. different yeah. scents, mm, and everything. Mm, mm, mm. And there now there might be contingent relations among these flowers. That's the rule, right? So maybe when I visit, let's say, a yellow neutral flower, mm. um, I should not go to the blue one because I get absolutely nothing. Well, if I first go to the uh, towards the yellow one and then to the red one that was hidden behind it, I get a reward. So now I can start learning contingencies in my environment. Oh, you, okay, that, 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 that's that's sure. You could you could do that, but you got to. We, hmm. Okay, they can. Okay, let me let me say this one thing. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, they can learn. Um, it's called what do you call it? It's not. Um, it's symbolic delayed master sampling. Mm -hmm. So not just direct matching of stimuli, but saying, for example, if I if I see um, blue blue at the entrance, uh, then I should pick the vertical grading versus the horizontal opposed to the horizontal grading in the second uh, in a, in one decision chamber, mm -hmm. and then uh, you can go you can cascade this. You can go to a second decision chamber where you have a choice between you know two other stimuli, for example, a radial pattern versus a a set of concentric circles. So if you see blue, you pick vertical, and you pick uh, radial. Mm -hmm. If you see yellow, then you pick um, right. Yeah, the other mm -hmm. other stripe orientation mm -hmm. and the other pattern. So all those contingencies, they can learn those those mm -hmm. contingencies. Now, so you think that'll be useful in nature? 
for problem solving i mean I, I, these animals will find themselves in complex uh, situations mm. they have to navigate through let's say densely dense growth there might be relationships among between yeah. flowers yeah so so it's the chances are in, in nature you probably won't find the stimulus changing in the same location but you could certainly apply it to two different trajectories right. for example if i come here to if i come to this location uh, you know, I, I recognize this blue, blue something here, mm -hmm. and that tells me how I should proceed. Exactly. Whereas if I see something else here, right. which, yeah. So moreover, it can pick up regularities among plants because, let's say, the the plant from which you want to get the nectar, mm -hmm. the flower, might not be easily visible from from their altitude. Yeah. But however, the tree just next to it is. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So so um, and maybe these the, the flowers you like grow close to certain trees. Mm -hmm. It's, this is completely reasonable, hmm. right? So now I can extract these regularities from my environment and immediately apply them. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so for pointing it out. How's my B psychology? I feel. Doing? I feel. I feel. <laughs> I feel. <laughs> I feel a lot more encouraged about what I'm doing. <laughs> Great. We're so pleased that we got to have you here. <laughs> but what, now, what, what got you interested? You're giving me a reason to live. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, but, but what what got you interested in bees in the first place? Oh, it's purely accident. Uh, I, I every, everything I've done in my life has been just not planned at all. So when I was I did my undergraduate in electrical engineering, as you probably know, uh, in Bangalore. And when uh, I was doing my masters, my professor suggested, it, and that was by the way, my masters was, and it was called applied electronics and servo mechanisms in those days. So it's mostly control theory and electronics. Um, uh, too, 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 too soft? I'm sorry. Um, and uh, with the masters, uh, my professor said, why don't you do something biological? You know, why don't you try to model a biological system using the control system theory that you've been studying? And so we decided to try and model the, the human eye movement system as a target tracking you know, system with a moving target. So that's how I got interested in uh, this thing. And when I went to, to the U.S. to do my Ph.D., there uh, I was looking for some project in the area of, you know, interface between biology and engineering. And it turned out the only person who was doing anything in that area was the person who was working on insect eyes. So I got into fly vision in that way. And then when I went to Zurich, Zurich in Switzerland was the, you know, one of the world's, you know, sort of leading areas in, in, um, in bee, bee, mm -hmm. bee work. So there, this is a lady called uh, Miriam Lehrer, who's unfortunately passed away now, who was the world's expert in training bees. She so, was with Rudiger Weiner? Rudiger, Rudiger, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, so mm -hmm. it was in Rudiger Weiner's lab, yeah. yeah. So that was, that's where I learned all about bees. Okay. So it was purely by accident, but uh, what a wonderful accident. Mm -hmm. They're just amazing creatures. Right. And so but how long ago was, was that your first encounter with the bees? Well, uh, <laughs> if you ask me to give away my age, <laughs> no, no, we won't go that far. Well, that would be that would have been uh, 1982 when okay. I was a young assistant professor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, but then so so the bee is still your your main target preparation in the empirical work. Or? I would say so. Yeah, we're huh? starting to work a little bit with birds as well, mm -hmm. but uh, bees are the main bees okay. are the main thing. Yeah. So so then there there, there are two is issues to explore, right? So. So with respect to, to, the, to the bee cognition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we touched a little bit on this issue of memory. Mm -hmm. um, but now, so is this sort of, this uh, the ability to extract these, these symbolic rules, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. would you see that as really the, the, the highest level of, of, of bee cognition that can be achieved? So are um, there other tricks in well, their the, cognition the, the, bag? Well, there are a few things which are really, which are kind of, uh, uh, yeah, kind of striking. That's one thing. The other thing uh, we were talking about the other day was, because uh, maze learning, uh, they learn to go through labyrinths and the various kinds of labyrinths. 
but uh, there's also the um, the business of um, breaking camouflage and uh, perceiving camouflage objects which they normally would not see. So um, how does that work? Well, for example, you probably say know this picture of this. Uh, um, Dalmatian dog that's mm-hmm. hidden behind a pattern of yeah, camouflage it's dots. it's a dog I never see. You never see it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but once someone told, po- traces the outline for you, mm-hmm. and you see that same image again, mm-hmm. it pops out. You see mm-hmm. the Dalmatian every time. I, right? I always say no, but it's you, true. But you yeah. do, it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, bees seem to have that property too. So if you can give them a hint, initially when they, you show them two camouflage objects and try to train them to distinguish between them, they don't seem to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you give them a hint by showing them uncamouflaged versions of the same two objects, and you train them to discriminate those two, and then you show them the camouflage mm-hmm. objects, and they can pick them out. Right. And not only that, once they've learned how to break the camouflage, you can give them novel camouflage objects. Mm-hmm. And without the pre-training, mm-hmm. they will do the task, learn the task. Mm-hmm. So you really taught them uh, a different way in which to see right. the world. That's pretty impressive. Which is not bad, isn't it? Do, do you think all these skills have given the bees an evolutionary advantage? Um, are there more bees than would be there otherwise? <laughs> I, I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't know to what extent it depends on uh, how much predation there is, you know, and how much uh, how many uh, creatures that are out there trying to eat these uh, eat uh-huh. these creatures. Mm-hmm. But that certainly is uh, the fact that they can sting has certainly c- kept them uh, alive for well, quite a long time. And, 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 and as you know, there's also these wonderful bee mimics. There are lots of insects which don't sting, which mm-hmm. have evolved to mimic the bee because other birds will stay away from them because they look like a bee. Mm-hmm. Uh, they taste beautiful, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the birds just avoid them because they've been conditioned to avoid bee, any bee. Mm-hmm. Any, but that's more the sting, though. How, that's the sting. How, how are their cognitive abilities helping them? Oh, I, I, I think, well, all I can say is if it certainly helps them become more efficient foragers. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, this is where recent beautiful work that was done, um, not in our lab, but uh, in the lab of a chap called James Neer. And um, he discovered that um, when a bee comes back and um, dances and to advertise a food source, and another bee is watching this dance, and it has been to that food source and has had trouble, it's been attacked by a spider, for example, uh, this bee will then um, headbutt this dancing bee and stop it from dancing mm. uh, because it's a dangerous food source. And uh, this this uh, stopping uh, is very uh, uh, target-specific. So it's, it stops this dance only when the bee is advertising that particular food source, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing else. And also, only if this bee has come back uh, badly damaged. Mm-hmm. If this bee has had a fight with a spider and it has actually won... No problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> right. right. So that, that's. I think that's getting to the point where these creatures are. I would say almost human. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> well, I never stung a stung a spider though, but used to work <laughs> on that. But now the, but the thing is that um, the memory of these bees that would be providing, let's say, the key infra the core infrastructure for these cognitive capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems to have, let's say, varying time windows in which it operates and is stable. Right. So, so how mm. many, let's say, would the distinction between a short and long-term memory be sufficient to describe B memory? Yeah, or do I mean, you there's, see there's, more stages? Well, well, there's also working memory. So right. this delayed master sample is a kind of working memory, right? And that sure. lasts about uh, five seconds. And there is the short-term memory, people say, which lasts about an hour. Mm-hmm. And that's really, and then if beyond that, it gets put into long-term memory. Mm-hmm. Now, exactly where the short-term memory resides, is it is it in the mushroom bodies or is it somewhere else? Right. Uh, no one really knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 
it's very it's very sad i mean the, the main problem i think is uh, as usual the funding for insect work is not as good as it is mm -hmm. with vertebrates so really the physiology mm -hmm. And even the anatomy. Well, the anatomy, thanks to people like Nick, is is, is really doing very well. Mm, but right. the physiology is really suffering. Mm. But now about the stability of this memory. Mm. For instance, if the bee comes back and it dances, mm. does that compromise the memory of that location? Do you think <laughs> anyway? Good point. A good point. I always looked at that. I mean, uh, why should it? Well, it has to recall it, right? So the memory yeah. might become instable because it has to be recalled, replayed in some form. Uh, so you're saying every time you recall, accessible. you might lose the memory trace. Well, there are there are some theories uh, of memory uh, that uh. that go, that go in that direction, right? Because it means recall um, would mean you have to make okay. this again yeah. the memory again accessible, and you pay uh -huh. a price for that. Okay, that's a good point. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to answer that question. But as you probably know, the the dance uh, is done only after the bee has visited the, sure. the footage several times. And also, by then, this particular experienced bee will not even be relying uh, on, on its own dance information to get to the food source. Mm -hmm. It'll be using the sequence of landmarks and things that it's learned to go along the way. Right. So, it, uh, you know, that's why, um, you know, although on a cloudy day, uh, when the sun is covered and the whole sky is cloudy and there's no polarized light or sun, uh, there's no dancing. Mm -hmm. The bees don't dance. But the bees that already know the food source will continue to forage mm -hmm. because they don't need that information anymore. I mean, it's like you and I, you know, we, we know a familiar place like this beach uh, mm -hmm. that we're going to. I don't know it, but you know it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would be using vector information because <laughs> you've given me that vector information, but you won't be using it. I'd just be using a sequence of landmarks, right? That's right. That's okay. how these bees do it. The experienced mm -hmm. bees do it that way. So so the information hidden in the dance is really very crude. Yes. Crude yes. information yes. about yes. the and environment. And it's kind of dispensed with, uh, you know, once the bee has advertised the food source and enough uh, recruits have been collected, uh, they basically forget about it. Right. The dance is not done mm -hmm. anymore. Okay. But when a new food source comes up, then, of course, the dancing starts mm -hmm. again. Okay. But so now another part of your work, which might also be sort of have its roots in your engineering background, is you have been mapping a lot of this understanding of insect vision and, and, and behavior onto machines, onto robots. Yeah, right? that again, so, you know, that's, yeah, that's also something that we didn't think of about ourselves. And it sounds a bit stupid because, you know, <laughs> this first thing that we published on bees navigating down corridors... Um, we didn't even think of it as any, anything that had potential engineering applications. But then after that work got published, a number of labs started to build robots that navigated down corridors using the same principle. Mm -hmm. And so we were actually sort of rather, you know, latecomers to this thing. Mm. And uh, in fact, I wasn't even really pursuing that a lot until um, a few uh, U.S.-based military funding agencies uh, kind of just tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, would you like to work on this? And uh, mm -hmm. Here is some funding, right. so that's how we got into it, really mm -hmm. ourselves. But now, tell me, so, so, to what extent have these principles really generalized successfully? What can you really achieve with this? Okay, how okay. close is it to what you see in these insects? And yeah, so yeah. On? So, I, yeah, as I was saying uh, briefly the other day, so we're not really uh, doing uh, what you would call as biomimesis. Mm -hmm. um, so we're totally not building a compound eye. Uh, I mean, it, it's probably a good idea to do that. If, if you have the, the expertise and the technology, uh, you'd probably learn something nice. But our, our idea is to implement the principle. So instead of using a compound die, we started out by using um, uh, just a single uh, camera, off-the-shelf camera, but building a specially shaped reflecting surface, um, just a, a, you know, a, a mirror, mm -hmm. uh, but a specially shaped mirror. So you can do, you can play. We like to do things with mirrors. <laughs> we found of mirrors. Mm -hmm. So with a mirror, for example, you can have either a, a spherical mirror. The trouble with a spherical mirror is that it, um, um, the radial um, 
gain is not constant. So what happens is if you look at the world with a, with a hemispherical mirror, then the central part um, is, is magnified and the peripheral part is compressed, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have uniform um, mm -hmm. gain, elevational gain, as right. you might say. So we tailored a shape that produces uniform elevational gain, which is kind of useful because then, you know, you don't re lose resolution. You, know, mm -hmm. you make, what do you say, optimum use of the resolution, no matter where right. you're looking, right? So we use that on, on our aircraft, but with a, with a standard camera. Mm -hmm. And that functions almost as well as a compound die. Uh, there are a few blind zones, of course, like uh, the, directly behind the camera, you can't mm -hmm. see, and then behind the mirror, you can't see, but you've got a good field of view there. Right. So that's what we do. So we, we, we implement compound panoramic vision in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't build a flapping wing uh, vehicle because that's too hard and we're not experts. We leave that to people like, you know, Mike Dickinson and so on. Mm -hmm. So we just um, build a vision system that uh, uses some of the was a global principles that we discover from insect vision. So, for example, the, the finding that you need to measure optic flow in the two eyes uh, and, and to, to, to and balance them mm -hmm. in order to fly down the middle of a corridor. Mm -hmm. So, but the actual computation of the optic flow again, we don't do it by using the biological algorithms because we find that the biological algorithms don't do the job for us. Why not? Because they 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 don't signal velocity reliably. They 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 confound they confound. Uh, <laughs> Image velocity with the spatial frequency, they they are not robust to changes in contrast. Mm -hmm. They're just a mess. Well, just to just to clarify <laughs> though, when you say biological algorithm, you yeah. really have in mind the Ricard model or, oh, or, or yeah. models that the people have made. People have made. The, you don't actually know what is going on inside we the We do. Yeah, we exactly. So we perhaps the true biological algorithm obviously works, right? Yeah, what right. The, the, the real biological algorithm actually works. It still hasn't been, yeah, them. we don't know exactly what's happening in the nervous system to generate that. But behaviorally, the animal behaves as though it is sensing velocity mm -hmm. very, very robustly. No, because what I found interesting, uh, I mean, it sounded a bit normative what you were saying, right? Because in some sense, the biological algorithm as a biological algorithm mm -hmm. must be incredibly precise and robust oh, yeah, because, yeah. you know, it's computed in this really minuscule computational no, system. When I say biological right? algorithm, I mean, I mean the known biological algorithm. Right. Our interpretations of what hypothesize. Right? Hypotheses okay. or, or the recordings from neurons, you know, mm -hmm. the models of neurons that, uh, that respond to motion. Right do not seem to do the job. So. Well, that, that's perhaps a limitation of the people who did the modeling rather than of the fly. Well, yeah, okay. They, they, <laughs> in, a, in a way, they're trying to model the neuron's response, and they're probably right. But they have done a bad job. Well, no, well, the, this particular neuron may show that response, but mm. maybe they're not looking at the right neuron. Maybe no, but there's, but there's else, something huh? interesting here, Srini, that mm. I think, uh, of course, I understand you want to defend your colleagues, okay? That's, that's all right. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that indeed people have, have taken the physiology, given that some sort of functional interpretation, mm. but if you apply it to your aircraft mm -hmm. it is exposed to just different conditions because we're not anymore you, you're not tying this airplane to a table and show it fixed stimuli no, no, no. it's now flying around mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the input sampling the dynamics of the stimuli has, has really changed completely mm -hmm. yeah. and that's where these algorithms of course collapse because they have been calibrated in highly controlled yeah. rather artificial situations so I think an interesting consequence of this observation is maybe that both the experimental context the experimental paradigms mm. have sort of been biased our interpretation of what these systems do and on top of that possibly mm. our algorithmic function interpretation has just maybe been completely misguided this is a, this yeah. is actually a consequence yeah. of your work mm. I, I mean yeah I mean, I mean the other way i suppose we're, so we, uh, the way we're doing it presently is to uh, put on a different hat completely so when i say i want to measure optic flow i simply uh, 
you know, we've developed a whole bunch of just, you know, very machine vision oriented algorithms, uh, which, which work well. I mean, they give you the right answer. They've probably got nothing to do with the biology. So that's how we do it. But in the future, maybe uh, maybe there's a there's a, a learning method or a, a, a I don't know, genetically uh, what what's the word uh, genetic algorithm based approach which will which will give mm -hmm. us something that uh, produces a, a circuit that measures velocity uh, right accurately. But because there's another aspect to this right that in some sense what what you're also using is computational hardware that has certain capabilities yeah and you exploiting let's say algorithms people have developed using this kind of hardware mm -hmm. but biological hardware might have to optimize different parameters exactly then your art the, the engineered hardware because in the in the case of the bee it must be flyable it must be very compact it must be energy efficient it, 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 and it, so it, it, on it's right? optimizing so many different criteria right. i agree completely and it's not uh, necessarily tuned to exactly what we right. want so therefore, if you talk about biomimetics, I think it might also be a good way to actually benchmark and validate our understanding mm. of the real see, biological see, I, system. I, I, like, I like to call it bioprincipics rather than biomimetics. So mm. you abstract sure. the principles. Mm -hmm. You don't slavishly copy the biology. Just abstract the higher-order mm -hmm. principles and try and implement them, right? Sure. Uh, and, 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 then, and then test our ideas that way about whether it's using this principle or not. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you, then, but earlier you said yourself that that's not then really what, what you do with, these, with, the, with your airplanes. With the aircraft, uh, no, we, what we do is we, we want to see, okay, we, we know the fact that Insect is now using optic flow to control its landing. Can we get an aircraft to use optic flow again mm -hmm. to control its landing? The exact way in which optic flow is computed, we don't know in an insect, but we'll use our own way. We'll mm -hmm. use our own engineering-based way. And that works. Mm -hmm. And that works. But but wait, this is funny because in some sense, in the literature, people mm. would make you believe that they do know how flies or flying insects compute motion. They say it's the record correlator. Yeah, I so mean... So why do you say we don't know how it's computed? Because it doesn't fit the behavioral data. I okay, mean, tell uh, me. See, the thing with the record correlator, it, the only thing it can reliably tell you, really, if it comes down to it, is the direction in which something is moving. Beyond that, it, it has, it, it, information is very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. So it, if you want to use it as a bang-bang controller to control the, um, the direction, it, keep flying forward, right? So if the world moves to the right, you, it means you veered off to the left and you generate a compensatory yaw talk to turn back to the right. For doing that kind of bang-bang control, it's great. It's very mm -hmm. reliable. But when you're turning to the right, you want to know how, how rapidly you're turning. It does not give you right. a reliable answer. But, and then there's another thing that always worried me about the Reichert correlator, mm -hmm. is that in some sense it, it tells us that neurons can multiply. And biophysically, I find it always difficult to comprehend well, how you well, could yeah, do actually, that. So. Actually, we, we had a cute idea that I published as part of my PhD thesis a long time ago, which I don't think anyone's really picked. It. You could do it very easily, very easily. Okay, just a, co a coincidence detector, neuron, and two trains of random spike trains coming in, two different frequencies, right? They're mm -hmm. random, just jitter. Mm -hmm. So the probability of a coincidence is proportional to F1, frequency one, that frequency of F2. Mm -hmm. So the spike rate at the output will be proportional to mm -hmm. the spike rates in the input, if you assume randomness. Right. Uh, if, if, it's, if there's no randomness, if they're periodic, mm -hmm. then that doesn't work because you mm -hmm. could have either perfect, you know, synchrony or no synchrony. So is there any evidence for this <laughs> but kind the moment, of... But the moment you have noise, mm -hmm. and noise is actually helpful in this case, um, you, will get a, you will get a beautiful product. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's found a neuron like that, but I'd, right. love, to, I'd love, mm -hmm. to, love to see a neuron because we published that a long time ago. <laughs> we also briefly discussed the possibility there are other sensors, like uh -huh. it is actually sensing drag in the air or something like that. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Possibly. 
Yeah, uh, certainly. Combining the visual information. Yeah, certainly. With other I mean, there, there, there are. Um, um, uh, the antennae are doing all kinds of things, as we were saying. They're probably tactile sensors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, just as um, uh, just as the beautiful rat whisker story we heard just now, um, bees look like they uh, they're using their when they come in close to a surface to land. Uh, when the surface is oriented nearly vertically, they're using their antennae to make the first mechanical contact. Um, uh, and um, also, it seems like the antennae tend to be perpendicular. Mm-hmm. to the surface as they're coming in and hovering they have a perception of the surface slant <laughs> mm-hmm. and you can even fool them by producing optical illusions which uh, simulate different surface slants by having texture gradients so mm. obviously the eye is anal- the visual system is analyzing uh, surface orientation right. and maybe that's one where we could apply apply this this model too mm-hmm. yeah excellent so then um you haven't said much about the birds yet, and still I want to hear something about it. So oh, we're just starting. Yeah. Okay. No, but at at a level of intuition, if you if so now we, we talked about the bee, we have talked about this sort of bio principics and mm-hmm. extraction of core design principles mm-hmm. of the bee brain. Mm-hmm. Would you believe that you will also find some of these design principles back into the bird brain? Some at least so far we found a couple of similarities. Um, one again, and this is um, again we haven't tested a whole range of birds. But if you take uh, one of the standard birds in Australia, it, it's uh, called the budgerigar. Budgies. Mm-hmm. But do you get budgies here? Maybe in the animal in store. In the pet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There, it's a kind of a, an iconic Australian uh, bird, native bird. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there, um, if you fly them down a tunnel, they show uh, very similar behavior to mm-hmm. what the, what the, what the bees do. So we haven't been able to actually physically move patterns in these tunnels yet. We're starting to do that now with a long tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you can manipulate the optic flow by having static patterns, which are for example, horizontal stripes on one side and vertical stripes on the other side. Then you you imbalance the optic mm-hmm. flows that way, and they behave in exactly the same right. way that the. Uh, mm-hmm. and this, this is interesting in the context of our notion of convergent evolution and, yeah. and understanding engineering principles by mm-hmm. looking at convergent evolution. Clearly, if the birds are using the same optic flow mechanisms mm-hmm. as the bees are, it's, um, it will yeah. have to be mm-hmm. convergent mm-hmm. simply yeah. because Absolutely. the common ancestor didn't yeah. fly. Yeah. The other thing mm-hmm. that seems to be uniformly true in many species, including humans, is the fact that motion perception is largely colorblind. So uh, humans, as you probably know, uh, it, although we have beautiful color vision, the motion sensing system is almost colorblind. It's mm-hmm. driven only by the luminance pathway, red, right. plus green. And if you look at the bee, again, it's colorblind. It's driven only by the green uh, mm-hmm. receptor, mm-hmm. all of the motion sensing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the spectral sensitivity uh, function of the green receptor, it sits, it bang on the uh, on the sum of if you take the red plus green cones the, our luminous pathway it sits exactly on top of that mm-hmm. so it's as though that system is adapted exactly to our environment exactly the same thing and now we're finding that even birds are like that at least these buzzards are behaving as though their perception of motion is also colorblind also although these birds mm-hmm. are have even better color vision they're tetrachromatic right mm-hmm. right uh, and and, so and yet the go- system is going out of the way to make mm-hmm. the motion detection colorblind exactly, exactly. do we understand mm-hmm. why but wait but that can is be that more efficient i think the the, the 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 common notion is that the early creatures and then again correct me because i'm not an evolutionary biologist is that uh, most of the early vision systems did not have color before you needed to have basic motion sensing just in order to move around, uh, and and uh, you know not bump into objects, mm-hmm. and you know um, mm-hmm. do uh, you know just navigate safely, uh, and then later on when flowers evolved in the scene and it became important to recognize objects based on color, that's when color came in. Mm-hmm. So 
And many people, and this is still a hotly debated topic, but many people think, you know, color vision sort of co-evolved with bees and flowers at the same time, mm. pretty much. So there's no fundamental need to have color to begin mm. with. But now, in it, if on this issue of convergent evolution, mm. right, so um, you could also argue that, that there can be, in the end, a common ancestor that just had to move and crawl, right, in a visual world. Mm. And that could have picked up these kinds of responses to motion. You yeah. don't need to fly to pick that up. No, sorry, so, absolutely. So absolutely. If, if you just have to speculate, mm -hmm. how would you see this? Is it convergent evolution to a similar solution between flying insects and birds or just really a very ancient common ancestor just well, crawled around? I would around say a with, very ancient with, common ancestor is my guess, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, primitive things like phototaxis, you know, mm -hmm. going towards a bright light source yeah. is probably a very fundamental thing. Uh, going towards something that smells good is probably a good mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, right. and, and then, but, but on the other hand, though, I mean, the hummingbirds and the bees fly in the same way, and the common ancestors didn't fly. So, so not everything is convergent. We have to be a little careful about that. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of optic flow, mm. um, do you think that it is indeed in the common ancestor? Are, are the speed, are the uh, par parameter regimes right? Even though it had to sense motion, uh, do the birds and the bees have a a more refined sense of, then, the, of then, the speed. Then, for example, what then, some crawling, about? some crawling yeah. primitive animal, let's say. <laughs> oh yeah, they would have a, def a more refined like sense. Like a snail, for instance, you know. Yeah, it will respond to moving visual stimuli. See, I my my guess is that. Um, um, do, do flying creatures have to have more precise um, flow? Um, detection oh sure yeah they need to have also depending on the speed of flight um, it seems like certainly the uh, nervous system is very different right the dynamic properties are very different the right from the photoreceptors you have uh, much higher flicker fusion frequency uh, mm -hmm. if you've got a if you've got a, a fast flying creature um, and I would say even the motion sensing units are tuned to their speed mm -hmm. so I would say that the a thing like a primitive worm would probably have again the same kind of same kind of basic structure for motion detection because it's not very complicated when you think about it. If you just want to tell which direction something is moving, you just need to have one inhibitory synapse, right, mm -hmm. between one That's photoreceptor right. and another mm -hmm. one. And that could have evolved as early as lateral inhibition, mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. And so you mm -hmm. just modify that well, little bit. Well, actually, for, for, for any No, but you could even go to other modalities. If you go to some mechanical sensing or right. chemical sensing, all you want to do is measure a difference. Hmm. That's what this is What is then generalized to some, some optic sensor. You just measure a difference. And That's this right. gives you right. motion. But, but, but as you were also pointing out, the Rijkaard detector, which does that, hmm. is not adequate. To it's not adequate. not so adequate. So therefore, there is something more. Sure. Yes, sure. there is something in common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, uh, but there's more. But yes, mm. and, and, and that is really necessary for this behavior. And then, you can't and, do without it. Yeah, and that's where maybe maybe you even have parallel pathways. My guess is that, uh, at least in the bee, there must be several parallel pathways that are sensing different aspects of motion. For example, this optical avoidance and flying down the middle of a corridor, that motion sensing seems to be non-directional. It's not directional at all. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, you know, if you want to avoid an obstacle, you don't really care which way the thing is moving. You just want to avoid it because of its high speed, right? So maybe it's computationally simpler to just do some non-directional motion sensing rather than compute motion right. direction. It's just not necessary. And this thing has completely different properties. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think things are changing now. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but as long as uh, Reichardt was alive, uh, there was a big school in tubing and following the Reichardt model. Yeah. But I think now uh, things are starting to... Uh, Unravel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. 
But so so to finish up, there are two two questions um, that we actually pose all everybody we, we interview for the podcast. So so there you come out of engineering, discover the bee, do all this fantastic work, have it fly now on on, on these uh, airplanes, move to the to the bird. So you've been exposed to these different disciplines, uh, trying to extract then these these engineering principles of biological systems. So if we would like to follow in that in that tradition, what's the law of Srini we should uh, adhere to? What's Srini's law? Srini's law. Yeah. <laughs> follow your heart. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about uh, you know where your next job is going to be. <laughs> 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 now just follow your heart, and if you enjoy what you're doing, uh, things will come to you mm-hmm. naturally. Do you want do you want me to say briefly what what my next thing? I don't know if I will ever get around to doing this, but what my really my next uh, I would love to be able to look at um, uh, higher emotions in simple nervous systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like, uh, for example, uh, uh, joy, mm-hmm. disappointment, fear, mm-hmm. anger, uh, pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a whole thing there, and I believe this is an entire continuum, and there's no mm-hmm. such thing as, you know, I find it hard to believe that invertebrates, for example, don't feel pain, whereas mm-hmm. vertebrates right. do. There's so, no hard and fast. So would you speculate then that, that these animals would qualify for a very primitive form of consciousness? I would think so. I would think so, mm-hmm. especially, you know, that uh, that headbutting that I mentioned to you. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I find it hard to believe that's all done in a purely reflexive way. Mm-hmm. Especially right. because it's so subtle, mm-hmm. right? I mean, well, the, headbutting is not uh, that subtle, I have to well, say. No, but <laughs> no, but the things that control when it headbutts and doesn't headbutt, right? It's well, very, it's very precise, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that it's exactly that food source is being signaled, and also on how dangerous the, the predator there is, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. That's you can't say this amazing. is all being done by some mm-hmm. stupid automaton, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's well, more I, to I it. I think to any of us who actually watched flies and yeah, things closely yeah, behaviorally, yeah. there's no doubt in our there's, minds there's a, that a, they are conscious. There, there, there's mm-hmm. a lot going on, you know? For example, yes. you, you, you jab a cat or a dog and it flinches and you say it feels pain. Mm-hmm. And you jab an insect and it, again, does the same kind mm-hmm. of reaction. But you say, right. oh, you say it can't, it can't be pain yeah. because it's an insect. It must, mm-hmm. must just be a reflex. Right. How, how do you know, right? Well, look, this is this is a great topic for another <laughs> podcast interview that we're definitely going to have in Sorry, the Sorry, I didn't future. want to launch you off but, on this. But no, no, this is good. But then... The final question for me is really, so So since uh, Partha is so successful and generates all this money, we can travel <laughs> around the world on his budget, you know, without any trouble. So five years from now, we're going to go visit your lab and we're going to remind you oh, of, of, of a hypothesis great. that you generate today that you feel most passionate about and that you claim will be will come out five years from now. So what's that hypothesis? Oh, uh, my hypothesis will be uh, that insects feel pain. You're really going to work on that? Oh, I, I, look, I, if I get the funding, if I get the okay. funding, mm-hmm. I'd love to. Okay. I've got some ways in which they can be tested, I think, which will be a little more uh, mm-hmm. more telling than just jabbing the insect and saying it's a, it's a, it's a reflexive thing because right. that's, that doesn't convince people. It convinces mm-hmm. me, but it doesn't convince other people. But I think there must be ways around it. it. You can never make a conclusive proof. But again, as for example, now that they're convinced that in, uh, fish feel pain, for example, mm-hmm. do you know how they finally did it? It's no. a very cru- In fact, it involved a bee. <laughs> they huh. took a bee sting. They took a sting out of a bee and uh, stung the lip of the fish, uh-huh. and the fish twitched. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Aha! The fish feels pain." It seems like a very primitive, unsophisticated experiment, mm-hmm. but the world was at the right time to accept that at mm-hmm. that point. And they said, "Aha! Mm-hmm. Fish feel pain." And so now, from now, now on, we you know we've got guidelines for experimenting mm-hmm. with fish. So that means now we have mm-hmm. to slap a bee with a fish and <laughs> yes. see if it twitches. <laughs> Is that? I think that's what you're proposing exactly. now. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah the, the fish will probably twitch, right? <laughs> because the bee would have stung the fish. <laughs> exactly. And the bee doesn't feel the pain, obviously. <laughs> so well, really... You proved two things there. The bee doesn't feel pain and the fish feels pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so happy we resolved that issue. So, Srini, thank you very much for this wonderful uh, interview. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> thank you, Pastor. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.